Well, good morning, Grace Church. It is a joy to be able to stand before you. Um, it's quite humbling opportunity, um, but I'm thankful. Love you so much. I'm glad you're here. And if you do have your Bibles, um, I pray you do. Would you go ahead and be turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 11? And as you turn, I want you to imagine with me, if you can, many of you can dial back the memory. Some of you are in this situation currently, and others, I'm sure you've seen this scene somewhere in a movie or TV show. And I want you to go back to um, middle school or high school cafeteria where lunch takes place. And again, we've seen this or experienced this. There's a new kid or there's an unpopular kid, student, there's one who may be poor there, and the popular ones come through, and they pick on this individual, singling him out or her out. Maybe the, she's, she or he are by themselves or with a group, but uh, you, you've seen the food being the, knocked out of their hands and all over the floor, taking the milk carton and pour it all over their heads, or just taking their lunch money, picking on them, and leaving this certain individual in a just state of embarrassment and confusion and humiliation. And while the, the, the popular ones walk off laughing together, high-fiving one another, uh, totally unconcerned about this individual who they just destroyed. And so this is a far from a perfect parallel with our text, but I hope it kind of provides a little bit of context of, of what we see here in, in our text of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So if you would, we're going to begin reading in verse 17 through the end of the chapter. I'm using the New American Standard Version, and so hear the word of the living God. Paul's writing, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? I, will, I praise you. This I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Verse 29, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are sick, are weak, sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. 
But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you'll not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Well, let's turn our hearts to the Lord. Father in heaven, you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, and there's no one in this room worthy enough to even touch the hem of your garment. Lord, we, we admit that we're, we're, all, we're all weak and vulnerable and prone to love ourselves way more than we love you, but our fellow man, our brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are not in Christ, we, we tend to gravitate towards self, and even now all of our attention is on me, and we, Lord, beg you to destroy every one of those idols in our hearts this morning. Crush them, O oh God. Christ is the only one who should be elevated to his rightful place in our hearts and minds in the way that we love one another. We need your help now as we dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We need your grace. We need your spirit to help me, to help us all have ears to hear by faith and to be changed. Lord, may we come again with humility. Give us the grace to block out every distraction. Would you remove those obstacles that prevent us from seeing you and hearing you rightly? Not me, but you, your word. That's what we want to know. That's what we need. That's the food that we must feast upon. And so be gracious to us now. Hear our prayers and come in power, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're visiting with us today, you've already heard that we're trekking through 1 Corinthians as a body. The local church began at the beginning of this year. And the lot, chapter 11, uh, beginning of verse 17, has fallen to me. And I'm, I'm so thankful to be able to stand before you today. But something that's been pointed out time and time again that we've seen is that Paul, in writing this letter to the Corinthians, he's addressing issues time after time after time after time, pointing out sin, sin, sin that's in the camp because he knows it can't stay there. But he doesn't just leave it at that. He doesn't just say you're wrong, 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 wrong for doing this, does he? He doesn't just leave them in this state. But he's actually pointing them with each error in their, in their character, each sin in the body, he's pointing them to the gospel. He points them to a remedy, which is Jesus Christ. And, that, and the, this text is no different from us today. And the main overarching thing that I, I keep seeing over and over and over again, this, what's being threatened in the, in the church of Corinth, and even today, obviously, is disunity in the body. Paul has already highlighted that he's committed to preaching Christ in him crucified, and guess what? He continues to do the same thing in chapter 11. Chapter 11 begins, as we know last week, Pastor Jim presenting to us the, the issue of head coverings, and he connects it to the supremacy of God as he alone is head over all things, including Christ himself. But Paul quickly returns back to this topic of food and corporate meals, which he has already mentioned several times beginning in chapter Eight and working its way through 10. The New American Standard Bible that many of us use today uses this word to eat actually 25 times in this one letter alone. So it seems to be a pretty big deal. There's a reason Paul keeps addressing it, the topic of food and eating and consumption. And so 
In chapter 8, Paul, Paul's addressed eating food sacrificed to idols because they lived in a context where people actually did that. They ate food that was sacrificed to false gods, false idols. And Paul, Paul tells them that if you're doing that, you ought to consider your brother's conscience. In chapter 8, he says, if food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. So you hear that? There's consideration for the whole, for others, even when we eat. And very popular verse in chapter 10, verse 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. See, it's interesting. These meals were connected to fellowship gatherings. When they, happened, when they came together as a body of believers. In chapter 10, verse 16, speaking of the Lord's Supper, Paul says, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? There's emphasis on that word sharing. Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? The SV uses the word participation instead of sharing. And this word is the Greek word koinonia that many of us have heard and know is fellowship. So he's saying when we, the, the cup of blessing is a fellowship with the blood of Christ. And the bread is a fellowship, it's a koinonia with the body of Christ. And just not long after that in the same chapter verse 20, Paul tells him, I don't want you to be sharers, there's that word again, koinonia with demons. So again, something's going on where, where participation, meals, are, is, a, is fellowshipping with demons. And he clearly tells him to, to stay away from that, stay clear, do not be sharers with demons. And so this topic of food and fellowship and what's appropriate, inappropriate, is common in this section. And yes, chapter 11 begins with, uh, we, we're seeing a lot of the order in the Christian gathering and what it should look like from Jim's sermon last year, but last week. But again, Paul is returning back to this topic of food, and I think it's important. There's a reason he's doing that. He points to an issue that's been brought to his attention. And we learn in chapter 1 that Chloe is the one, and some, of, and some other saints have informed him about the status of the people at Corinth. And he's, he's, he's aware that there are inappropriate attitudes and unchristlike love happening when the church partakes of fellowship meals, particularly the Lord's Supper, within the body. See, God's concerned with how we conduct ourselves as a local church. It, it actually matters what we do, even as such a little thing as eating or drinking. And it's because our, our conduct portrays the kind of people we are and who we belong to, namely Jesus. So if we're picking up in verse 17, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. In verse 2 of the same chapter, he says, now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions which I delivered them to you. So he's praising them for one thing, not too long after, guess what? Paul is not happy. He doesn't praise them for long before he's again addressing sin within the body. Paul has switched gears to emphasize his disapproval of the Corinthians' actions and says, I do not praise you. He's about to light into them. I do not commend you for what you're doing. I'm not going to pat you on the back and congratulate you when you come together because it's not been for any good. It's actually been for the worse. So you think now, they're listening to this letter, their ears probably perked up. Say, Man, what have we done again? He's constantly getting on to us, but he says he doesn't praise us. We think we might be doing a good thing. 
Verse 18, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. So again, this hearing, he's heard it from outsiders, probably those who knew the Corinth, but they've gone to Paul and they've informed him of the situation. And he says, when you come together as a church, the phrase is literally, when you assemble as an assembly. This is ecclesia, the body of God, it's not just a random gathering. It's when we gather like this to do something very special and together, focusing on Jesus, sitting under his authoritative word. It's the collected, congregated, representative citizens of heaven seen here on earth in local gatherings. If you're, if you're familiar with this letter, even if you're not, just something to inform you, this word divisions has been uh, repeated word and issue within the body it's been it was brought up quite early in the letter actually chapter 1 verse 10 he says i exhort you brethren by the name of our lord jesus christ that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you that you be made complete in the same mind in the same judgment he continues to to harp on that the divisions and then the very next chapter 12 he he brings this up again which this text is so fitting for ours today But chapter 12, verse 24 and 25, God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. You would think he would have included that in this text because it's quite fitting, but it's something we see spread throughout the whole letter because it's such a huge issue. And now we're kind of confused when we hear verse 19 because he's just saying, and I'm, I'm concerned because there are divisions that exist among you. But then he says, verse 19, but there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. What are you, what are you, what are you saying, Paul? You're saying one, one sentence says to be no divisions. Now you're saying, look, there must be divisions. There must be factions so that approved may become evident. Well, this factions is, is similar to the word heresy. It's actually, but it's not addressing that issue. It's, 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 it's a, the idea of a sect or a party or a choosing. And I think the idea, what Paul's saying is, is there will indeed be a clear division among the people. Those who are genuinely Christians, those who are genuinely approved, legitimately approved by God will be plainly recognized by your actions. It'll be made evident within the body, those who truly belong to him and truly, and, and those who really don't. So it's going to be evident those who truly are the Lord's. The New Living Translation phrases it this way. Of course, there must be divisions among you so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. Verses 20 through 22. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. One's hungry and other's drunk. What? Do you not have your houses in which you're to eat and drink? Paul's getting riled up here. See, what's going on in the setting of the supper? By the way, this is point one, the setting of the supper. (laughs) I forgot to mention that. The setting of the supper is that they're coming together for a meal, and one's getting hungry, another's drunk. They're despising the church of God. They're thinking little of they're brothers and sisters. They're shaming those who have less and aren't, who have nothing. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to, to understand and to, to hear these words and to say, hmm, something doesn't add up right. 
This doesn't seem to be how a church of God is to conduct itself. These people are definitely not living like we see the Bible teach the churches to live like. Particularly Philippians 2, 3, which we all know. Humility among you. You're to consider one another better than yourself. That's definitely not happening. But we know this is a reality for this church because in chapter 3, 3, he says, you are still fleshly since there is jealousy and strife among you. And, you are not, and, and are you not walking like mere men? And in chapter 4, he says, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other for who regards you as superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast? Later on in chapter 4, for this reason, he says, I sent Timothy to you to remind you of my ways which are in Christ, which are clearly not your ways. You're not living this way. But I've sent even Timothy to remind you of how you are to walk in the ways that imitate Jesus. Several times, again, throughout this letter, Paul's addressing their wrongful boasting that they do. They, they became very pride, proud, prideful. They, they weren't the Brady Bunch. They're the prideful bunch. And it's not a good thing. Again, these, these people were redeemed by the blood of Christ. Why? How did it get to this Way, why are they acting like this? Well, David Garland, a commentator on this text, is helpful when he says that these abuses were common in the Greco-Roman culture and practice. In the Roman context, the banquet becomes a theater of wealth and property, of social distinction or social climbing. One of the problems in the Corinthian church is that it is imbued with Roman cultural values that collide with the wisdom of the cross. And we know the wisdom of the cross is death to self. So in despising the church of God, the Corinthians have been abusing the community of faith, showing disregard, contempt for one another, thinking little of the chosen people of God. In every way, love is absent. The wealthier were shaming the poor believers by flaunting their abundance and luxury, and they were shaming those for whom Christ has died. So their corporate practices are contradicting what the Lord's Supper proclaims as it points to a Messiah who humbled himself, giving himself in an act of selfless love for undeserved sinners. And, and they, they are not demonstrating that sort of love to one another. Does that make sense? So it, begs the, it still begs the question, though, why were some Christians so neglectful, oblivious to the needs of their poor brothers and sisters? What causes people who have, filled with the Spirit of God, supposedly, to treat one another this way, it still doesn't make sense. Well, the culture aspect is helpful for Garland, but he also he, he continues to point out they were too much at home in a culture in which contempt for the poor was typical of the wealthier class. They still saw themselves as belonging to this culture that they were called out of, out of the darkness to live in a new kingdom, with new values, new morals, new truth, new standards to live by. They just weren't doing that. They were so used to a certain way of life as all of us. We're so used to our, the life that surrounds us, even the ungodliness that our views of believers, their views of believers who are of lower social and economical class, they're clouded by our material possessions and notoriety. And Paul says, look, when you come together, don't you dare call it the Lord's Supper because your actions discredit it to be called that. 
You're eating your own egocentric, selfish supper instead. And so whatever you're doing, it's, it's not honoring the Lord. So do not claim to be that. Paul's saying the church is not a social gathering where certain classes can show off and separate from weaker or poorer brothers and neglect the value of those individuals. It's not an opportunity of entertainment. They were getting drunk. They were enjoying themselves. That's not, this is not the place for that. He says, you have personal homes to engage in those activities. This, however, is God's house. This is God's temple, his dwelling. It is to be approached humbly and in a holy manner, respecting one another, but more importantly, respecting the host. It is the Lord's Supper. It belongs to him. He is the one that we should aim to please and to honor. So, Paul says in verse 22, what, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Nope. Paul, hey, does not celebrate. They're celebrating, they're feasting, they're enjoying themselves. Paul's saying, Look, nope, I'm not going to join in with you. There's no way I can join in participation in what you are indulging yourselves in. I will not praise you. So that's the sin pointed out. That's the setting of the supper now let's look at the significance of the supper. Here's Paul pointing to the remedy, the answer the, that will help them in their sin and transform their hearts. Beginning in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. Well, we see a clear reference here to the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the narrative accounts. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the, the, the narrative accounts of Jesus and his life on earth. And Paul is pointing back to that event that happens. And in our text, is most clearly similar to Luke chapter 22. So what Paul's saying and telling us is that the night of the Last Supper, because he references the Last Supper, this is, is what is to inform our doctrine for the Lord's Supper. And we see in this section that Paul is clearly contrasting Christ's self-giving with the Corinthians' self-taking, self-grasping. Well, let's look at what Luke 22 says. Let's read that account. You don't have to turn there, but listen. He says, when the hour had come, Jesus reclined at the table, and the apostles were with him. And this is right before he's to go to the cross. And Jesus said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it's fulfilled into the, in the kingdom of God. And when Jesus had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when Jesus had taken some bread, given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. So those are the words from Luke's account in chapter 22, Jesus and his apostles. And if you recall, it says, why are they gathered, gathered together? He says they're, they're eating this Passover. What's he referring to there? Well, you may, you may pick up on that been with us on, at Grow. We've been, we finished up Leviticus a week or two ago, and so we've, we've seen this idea of Passover, and it's connected to a meal. So we're pointing back to historical Old Testament roots 
with the Passover. And the Passover is God's grand finale of his judgments on Egypt as they held Israel in slavery and captive for so long. And Pharaoh refuses to let them go worship Yahweh. If you're unaware of the setting, God's people are in captivity and slavery in Egypt. And they've been there for a long time. And Yahweh tells his, his leader Moses to go before Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, and tell them to let my people go so they can come worship me. Well, many of you know that Pharaoh refuses that request. Time after time after time after again, he shuts it down. No, 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 no. And after each no, guess what came? A judgment from God on the Egyptians, on the gods of Egypt, as it will actually say. He brings nine judgments upon them, and each time Pharaoh refuses to give in and to let him go. So guess what? Exodus chapter 12. Now Yahweh says to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, he's telling them that they are to... Each man, according to what he can get, should, eat, should get a lamb. You should divide that, divide that lamb. Each family, each home, your lamb shall be unblemished, male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. And then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. And they shall eat the flesh the same night, roasted with fire. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head, its legs, along with its entrails. You shall not leave any of it over till the morning, but whatever is left of it, until morning you shall burn with fire. Now, you shall eat it in this manner. With your loins girded, with your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, you shall eat in haste. It is Yahweh's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, hear this, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So soon as that event happens, they are quickly led into, away from Egypt, out of Egypt, and the rescue through the Red Sea. As, as Pharaoh is, is following them, the great rescue of God's people. This is a, this is a memorial event. This is climactic it is huge it's fundamental for the people of God it's a very sobering significant memorial historical event the life of God's people and it's connected to a meal and this is this harkens back to God's again fundamental saving act of his people in the Old Testament and it's to commemorate this event that I just read about in Exodus they have this meal that we mentioned the lamb the unleavened bread the bitter herbs it's a meal that these that the Jews take even now Every year, they take it, this annual feast, to remember Yahweh's faithfulness and his love that was demonstrated toward them as he rescued them from Egypt out of slavery. So here we are in the gospel account, Luke chapter 22, and the narrative, we see Jesus and the 12 apostles eating this meal, same Passover meal, right before his death. 
And towards the end of the meal, we see Jesus begins discussing the significance of the bread and the cup, and he's applying it in a new way to himself. In Corinthians verse, chapter 11, verse 24, it says, When he had given thanks, he broke it, broke the bread and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It was custom for a Jewish meal for them to say thanks, especially over the Passover. And they would say these words, Blessed are you, Yahweh our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread of the earth. They would also say, Blessed are you, Yahweh our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. So God provides the bread, he provides the fruit of the vine. This is a blessing, traditional blessing that, that they say. And Jesus, as the head of this meal, he's, he's giving this blessing over this food. Bread was a staple food in that time that brought sustenance to the physical body. And what does Paul say? He says, this is my body, which is for you. I want to take you back into the Old Testament again, to the prophet Isaiah in the, chap- in the 53rd chapter. Many of you are familiar with this text, but have you ever noticed, have you paid attention to the for you language? Which is, I want you to, to listen for that as I read through some scripture from chapter 53. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. And he was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. My servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. He himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. See, this is the core of what Jesus came to do. He gave of himself. The Son of Man gave himself as a ransom for the many. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So we see breads connected to his body, cups connected to his blood, but in particular, new covenant is used. Again, Old Testament background. The blood of the covenant, if you're familiar with that, in Exodus 24, Moses has just gone up to the mountain to meet with the Lord, and he's given, them, given Moses instruction, ordinances, decrees to, give, to take back and give to God's people. And guess what? They say, yes, everything he says we'll do. Everything. The text says that then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. They said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which Yahweh has made with you in accordance with these words. You may be unfamiliar with the term covenant. We don't use it nowadays, but it's basically a term that refers to an agreement between two parties. And and the, the Bible is particularly God and his people. Old Testament, Israel. This was an agreement, this agreement in particular, involved blood being sprinkled on the people. The blood of an innocent animal covering a people. This word, covenant, speaks particularly of God's faithful commitment grounded in his divine word 
to always have a designated people that belong to him. And they, on their part, commit to trust and obey him. That's Exodus, New Covenant, also mentioned in Jeremiah, the prophet. Chapter 31, he says, Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them. That's what we just read about in Exodus. That covenant that they made with them, they broke that pretty quickly. Though he was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. But this is the covenant which I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I'll put my law within them and on their heart I'll write it. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. Covenant language. I'll be their God. You'll be my people. And here's what's crucial at the end of this text. In Jeremiah, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I'll remember no more forgiveness of iniquity remembering of sin no more how's that actually going to happen Jesus the new covenant in my blood Jesus is telling us there's a newness to this covenant that centralizes on his blood his death on Calvary guarantees that God's covenant with his people is secure and unbreakable And as we enter into this covenant with God, guess what? We also do with one another. We are a covenant community that's centered on Jesus. You're familiar with this text in Hebrews 13 that has been quoted a lot from this pulpit. Verse 20, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. So it's important to see here that Jesus is saying these words, my body for you, do this. He says that both concerning the bread and the cup. This is mine, do this, it's for you. Sacrificial language here, can't you see? He's pointing to a death, and that's the nature of this meal. And it's for a people, substitutionary. And guess what? They are commanded to participate. So I find it interesting that when Jesus wanted to communicate the meaning of his death to his apostles just the night before he was going to die, he didn't write a book or a pamphlet and gave it to them and said, read this. He had a meal with them. He sat down with them and ate real food and explained to them the significance of it and how he transformed the meaning of this significant Passover meal and it's importance to zero in on himself not me him on himself and how he affects inaugurates God's redemptive purposes for all creation and if we don't understand this supper we don't understand Jesus because this is what he pointed to his death his sacrifice so the commands to eat and drink again the Passover meal the Jews consumed the lamb the unleavened bread the the bitter herbs It was meant to do something to them. It really did have an effect on their senses. This purpose was to trigger everything within them to direct their minds back to Exodus. Back so that they would see themselves as those identified 
with Israel's who, the Israelites who were actually saved, the physical people. It helped them to remember Yahweh's faithfulness then and provision for them then so that they would live now in constant allegiance to him rather than in unfaithfulness. And so this isn't a task. The supper isn't something we're to be disengaged with. We are fully involved, fully participants, because in this act, we also see ourselves as those identified with Israelites, as those who were rescued out of Egypt. This is our people, our heritage. We are all the people of God, and we've all been rescued out of slavery, sin and darkness. And so as a fellowship, as this meal is a fellowship offering, it's, it's meant to, for us to enjoy, enjoy this with one another and with the Lord as we remember. So I ask, in what manner is this, is this meal to be done? Is the eating of the bread, taking of the cup? The phrase in verse 25, in remembrance of me. Who's the object of the remembering? It's clear that it's Jesus. It's all pointing to him. Yet somehow, Corinth had made it about them, which somehow we don't make that hard to do. <laughs> it's easy for us to make it all about me. But this always creates divisions in the church. Every time. Self-centeredness, self-adoration, self-egocentrism, pride always results in division, in schism, in discord, in fractures to the body. See, your physical body can't be healthy if you only focus on one member only. If you neglect the rest, especially the central core, you neglect your spinal cord, all because you have a, pink, uh, a paper cut on your pinky, you're going to be in a lot of pain for a long time if you neglect the central part of your body, the, the fundamental part, the central, the nervous system. And so, Grace Church, we will not, we cannot be healthy if all of us are focused on ourselves rather than Him. We look so often at self and we wonder, why do we see so little growth? Why do we have such little assurance? Why do we wonder that we see such we have such little encouragement? Well, I encourage you that we need to go see the eye doctor. And I'm not talking about tomorrow morning calling Dr. Jeannie Duncan up, make an appointment to see her. No, the omnipresent ophthalmologist. We need the one who can really help us focus, refocus our vision on the greatest of all delights. Jesus Christ. Isn't this the purpose of the historic Passover meal? To trigger the Israelites' memory of God's great redemption out of Egypt? It's a constant reminder, and so is this supper. The bread, the cup, it's a constant reminder to us because we get so clouded views of ourself and of our salvation because we're focused on us. We need this supper to redirect our minds as a regular memorial of Christ's great saving work for us. So fitting, Brother Tommy, Sharon, what, we rep what we're celebrating this weekend is what we should do every time we take this supper. It's a memorial to the one who gave it all, who ultimately gave it all for us. Anthony Thistleton, another commentator on Corinthians, helpful when he says things like this. To remember God's mighty acts is not simply to call them to mind, but to assign to them an active role within one's world. To remember God is to engage in worship. 
trust, obedience, just as to forget God is to turn one's back on him. Failure to remember is not absent-mindedness, but unfaithfulness to the covenant and disobedience. The supper is to trigger something in our senses as we take it. It should affect the heart and our mind and cause us to be taken back as well. Back to a dark night on Golgotha where the absolute fullness of another cup was poured out. It wasn't a cup of blessing. It was one of divine curses, of judicial fury. The cup of God's wrath completely pulled out in all of its fullness on the sinless one. And in doing so, Jesus receiving an eternity of judgment that was towards us on himself as he hangs there in humility, open shame and isolation. This is meant to move us, Grace Church. The covenant community of God. This remembering points us back to the redemptive event of the cross. And that is what constitutes, shapes, and transforms a corporate identity as God's people. But you know what else this remembering does? We think of Christ, but guess what? It collapses the prideful arrogance that we have as Christians. When we forget the cross and we forget God's mercy towards us, just like the Corinthians, prideful conduct flares up. We get easily puffed up in ourselves, in our performance, in our legalistic tendencies, our social distinctions that bring selfish attitudes into this corporate gathering, particularly to the meal. There's no way that that bad fruit can remain when we honestly remember Him as the supper intends for us to do. When we think of his self-giving, how can we live in constant self-taking? Me, 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 me. We can't. It's impossible. We must be humbled by the cross and treat one another with love and sincerity as we all come to the table as needy sinners in need of constant grace. Verse 26. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, well, I'll argue that this often should be often. It's why we come weekly to take the table because of what it means, the significance of it, and how it affects us. And then he says, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. This supper is preaching a gospel to us. The Lord's death till he comes. It's proclaiming, announcing a particular message. See, you, you thought Grace Church only had a few pastors that stand before you and preach. But the reality is each and every one of you, when you come to the table, we step into the communal pulpit and we're preaching Christ and him crucified to one another as we're in circles and the, um, to the unbelievers, to those who are just remaining in your seats for whatever reason. The gospel is being preached to you. We're doing that together as a body. Why do we preach? What do we preach? Christ and Him crucified. How long do we preach? Till He comes. Till He comes. This glorious eschatological promise is nearly hidden in the text. You could easily miss that and skip over it, bypass it. But He is returning. He is not still dead. He's a resurrected and reigning Lion of Judah. And because so, 
the Lord's Supper, which is grounded in the Last Supper, guess what it's pointing toward? The Lamb's Supper. That's right, the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we hear about in Revelation 19. The great end-time banquet where we feast forever on His supreme worth and endless supply. And now this Lord's Supper is not an end in and of itself. It serves as foretaste of what's to come. That we believers are guaranteed a place at the eternal table. Now we only have taste, tasting the crumbs, as it were that leaves us longing, anticipating what awaits us. And in focusing on the significance of this supper, as it points to Christ's substitutionary sacrifice, the church at Corinth and we ourselves will experience an internal transformation that will be evident in external demonstration of love and consideration for one another. Well, lastly, let's, let's look at the seriousness of the supper. We've seen the setting of the supper the significance of the supper. We also need to consider the seriousness of the supper. Beginning in verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. This whole last paragraph is filled with judicial language, such as guilty, examine, judgment, judge, discipline, condemned. There's actually nine words contained in these six verses speaking on judgment and many have had lots of questions about what this text is meaning what's it pointing to how do we eat in an unworthy manner what does that involve unworthy refers to something that doesn't measure up with a character or nature of a certain standard it's, re it's referring to an inappropriate manner in which you do something so to eat the Lord's Supper in a way that violates or disregards its purpose which is to preach the gospel, is to violate the, sup, the table. And it invites judgment upon yourself. Thistleton, again, he's helpful when he says, the focus remains on Christ and Christ crucified as proclaimed through self-involving sharing in the bread and the wine. If stance and lifestyle makes this empty of content and seriousness, participants will be held accountable for so treating the body and blood of the Lord. See, the attitude of the attendant is unworthy in that it doesn't remember him, but it focuses on ourself. The act is done in a manner that is out of sync with the sober nature of the event. So if you take the Lord's Supper in a way that doesn't match the gospel that the Supper proclaims, you become, again, subject to the great judge himself. How do we avoid this judgment? He tells us, verse 28, it must examine himself. But how do we examine ourselves? What test do we take? I mean, what is it, Paul? Help us. He doesn't give us much information. But this word test means to te approve. This, this word examine means to test yourself or to, to be approved. It's, it's actually a, a present active imperative verb, meaning it's a command to regularly examine yourself. Such a force could be phrased this way. You must continually examine yourself. It is essential, it is crucial that you do this or else be met with judgment. We see examining in other places in Scripture. Real quick, Lamentations chapter 3 says, let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. 
Paul also addresses this in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. He tells the people, again, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself, same word. Not applied to the supper like it is in our text, but in general, they are to test and examine themselves. And guess what? This is exactly what the Corinthians were not doing, (laughs) which we saw in verse 17 through 22. Instead of self-examination, they majored in self-exaltation, which concerned Paul so much. He saw the danger there that he addresses this out of love to keep them from God's condemnation. Do you see that? Verse 29, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he doesn't judge the body rightly. Again, a phrase that's been translated various ways, judge the body rightly. What does it mean? Other translations say without discerning the body, without recognizing the body, without careful regard for the body. NIV actually says without discerning the body of Christ. So what are we to judge or to discern or to recognize? Again, various interpretations what that word body is referring to. Is it the body of Christ? The physical body of Jesus? Is it the body of Christ, his bride? Is it the individual's body? Is it some sort of combination? A lot of opinions about that. Verse 31 actually says that if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. So just real quickly, I'll I'll, I'll lean towards judging the person individually, judging themselves is what's involved here. Don't have time to, to get into it deep, but whatever it is, there's judgment involved, and it's a very serious event, and there's consequences to it. See, verse 30, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. So Paul's heard, again, he's hearing things about the body. He's heard that a lot of people have been sick, and some have even died. That's what the word sleep is referring to, died. And guess what he does? He thinks about it connects it to their poor and improper and unworthy attitude and actions in the Lord's Supper that have resulted from a lack of self-examination. They have failed to see the significance and the seriousness of this supper, and the result is discipline. As my brother Mr. Henry has pointed out, do you have a category for God killing a Christian as a means of grace to keep them from further sin and damnation? It appears here to be a preventative measure taken to eliminate further damage done to a person's soul and also the body of Christ. We see here divine warning that should wake us up, wake us up to the dangers that selfish practices and disregard for spiritual fitness leads to. But what's the purpose of this discipline? Verse 32, when we're judged, we're disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. That's why he disciplines us. So you're not condemned with the world. This act of discipline is actually an act of love from the Lord so that we're not rendered guilty at the final judgment along with the unbelieving. Ignoring God's clear warning about self-examination and having concern for one another when coming to the table, it results in judgment. This table is a very serious sacrament, not to be taken lightly or approached on your own terms. And so before one comes to the table, he definitely ought to examine, audit, evaluate your spiritual status before God so that you might come in with a clear conscience and freedom of joy. Well, some concluding remarks in verse 33. 
tells them to wait for one another. Again, he's pointing to the church to live in a manner that regards one another in love, not selfishly pursuing individualistic motives or desires. But when you come together, wait. And if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. There's that phrase again. The Lord's Supper is meant to be a magnification of Jesus, a coming together to worship him, a fellowship, koinonia. It's supposed to be a celebration. But there is a way that we can come together and because of our prideful hearts and disregard for our soul and for one another result in judgment. And this we must avoid at all cost. We're to be reminded of him. And in doing so, looking to Jesus, we see again his love. His volunteer death for sinners so that we can be set free from self-preoccupation and be redirected towards a united community of faith that focuses our minds and hearts on Him collectively. So as we take this morning, when we, when we take this meal together, we're, we're, also, we're actually reenacting the story of freedom that Jesus gives to those who trust Him. The story of freedom of, our, of the Israelites, it's our story too. Well, if you can go back to the garden, the first Adam, he took and ate and plunged us into eternal ruin. The second Adam, Jesus says, take and eat. And he restores us back to eternal life in the garden where the ideal covenant community and kingdom of God is experienced. The very words that brought destruction in the garden are the same words that heal and restore us at the cross. What an amazing God. Saints, are you struggling in your fight with sin? Take and eat. Beloved, are you suffering under the weight of trials and tribulation? Take and eat. Do you find yourself barely hanging on to the vine? Then brother or sister, by all means, please take and eat this is where true life is found in the death and resurrection of the son of God who has overcome the grave destroying sin and death and he's returning and we will feast on his eternal pleasures forevermore. so the next time you come to this table which will be very soon pray that it affects you in a much deeper way than ever before and every time from now on forward we take this weekly, but that in no way should bore or diminish the significance of the experience. May it only heighten and intensify our worship of him and once again be reminded of his unfailing love for us. There can be no class divisions at this Lord's table. There's only one distinguished above the rest, and he is the host. And yet he invites us to partake and be blessed as we look to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word, your truth that we need, oh God, to sustain us, to give us strength, our inner man, to persevere, to press on through hardship and difficulty. It's not just a pick-me-up or self-help. It's the radical truth of a Savior who gave Himself for the undeserving, the unfaithful, the wicked, the depraved, those who are unlovable, yet you love. And you've called us to a different way of living. 
where Christ is, is our all. And apart from Him, we can do nothing. And so as we come to this table, God, take us back. Take us back to the cross that we remember Him. And as we eat this bread and drink the cup, may as it goes down our throats into our stomach, as we taste and as we eat, may we be reminded of the bread, of the body that was broken, and the blood that was poured out. As your wrath was poured out, it was done for us, not in vain, not wasted on anyone, for us, a particular redemption for a particular people, so that we would worship you in total allegiance and faithfulness because we're looking ahead we're not just looking back we're looking ahead we say come 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 quickly so that we can eat this meal with you we want you to bring others along with us doesn't just dwell on us lord we want others so we go out to the highways and the byways we go everywhere and say come come to the king's table turn away from the crumbs of this world and the foolishness of it and eat on jesus feast on him the greatest satisfaction in all of life so we lord we pray that you would rescue so many in this neighborhood in this building right now from slavery to sin and be set free to enjoy you forever. Only you can do it, and we pray that you would. In Jesus' name, amen.